People Rock Innovation. Hi, this is Agan Łukasz, and this is Catching the Next Wave podcast, where we discuss the future of design and much more. I might be very biased here, but I love the New Zealand accent. So I'm super happy to say that we have a Kiwi to chat with us today. Anna van der A tells about herself that she is a bridge between business developers and designers, speaking the language of all three and being able to translate their points and not translating with words, actually. Mm. And the translating happens not only verbally, although probably a part of it is verbal, I would assume, and the accent must be helping. But Anna is a great visual thinker, able to listen, observe and draw out insights to visually facilitate productive conversations in diverse contexts and in that way liberate the creative potential and power of people at work. So podcast is not the best medium for that, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> we are missing things here, right? <laughs> But people are missing. I mean, we look at her. Yes. <laughs> Maybe she would draw something. Who knows? Yeah. Anna focuses on innovation strategy, user experience, evidence-based design and problem solving and helps organizations to get customers' real jobs done more efficiently and effectively. And she's also a musician and an illustrator. Anna, so happy to have you with us today. Thanks. Pleasure to be here with you guys. I haven't seen you for a little while and it's lovely to catch up. Oh, absolutely. Anna, what was yes. first for you, drawing or music? Ah, interesting question, actually. I've never thought about this, but I know that I started writing songs. I'm sure I remember even when I was really little, just making up songs all the time. And um, I remember specifically when I was 10 or 11, I... I still remember the song that I wrote, and uh, and I wrote it down, and then I was like, how do I, how am I going to capture these things? So then I learned the guitar, so I had something to stick the songs on, but mm. but they still tend to come to me like that out of the blue. And then I have to attach them to some music. It can work the other way. I mean, if there's music, then songs just come ah, rushing in. <laughs> yeah. So the question was wrong, right? I mean, it's not that you started writing. You they just start coming to you or you start paying attention to them. Yeah, 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 yeah. They were like knocking on my door. As you are saying this, I reread the book, which is uh, called Big Magic. I don't know if you bumped into it before. Oh, yeah, I've had it mentioned. I haven't, I haven't read it yet. It talks about a number of concepts that I'm absolutely inspired by. By one of them is that for centuries we used to think that people are genius. So that genius is this inherent quality of you, right? And then you have the discussion, okay, the genius appears only when you're young and when you're older, then, you know, it's all gone and you know, it was all dark and sad. But what this book is talking about, and I love that concept, is that you have genius. That genius is not your quality, but it's something that comes to you and you can either nurture it or you can abandon it and then it goes somewhere else. So like what you are talking about writing and music sounds exactly like that. The genius came to you and then you said, hey, awesome, let's riff here. Yeah, and it's interesting because for too many years, I kind of had that door closed and I was um, still 
called myself a songwriter. I was so I was putting it on my CV. I was like, I've always been a songwriter, even though I was thinking, how many songs have I written recently? But then a couple of years ago, I bumped into someone, and I, when I said that, she was like, Ah, well, I can help you with that because she runs a songwriting club, and in this club, they give you prompts every week. Since then, I've written like. 150 songs or something. It's like reading a song a week. Just out they come. It's interesting. So I'm pumping that well again. I heard that David Bowie would cut chunks of articles from the newspaper and put them randomly on a page and would write songs around them, <laughs> which is a, a pretty cool trick, I think, for getting inspired. <laughs> That's really interesting because it really ties in with what I believe about research and in the same way that with a song, say if you give me a prompt for a song, so even if it was a song about our conversation today, what you need is material. So you need the raw material. So getting those words like he did, or you know what I might do, you, you pick out some words that are keywords, then you go and find some other words that are around each of those words. And you can get kind of a worksheet, so you're filling your brain with possibility. And then when the time comes, it just sort of all comes out. I mean, I've got a really great song where that worked out so nicely. So cool. And I was just like, it's like the song was having fun with me almost because then when all the words fit in, I was just like, wow, I didn't even see that coming. You know, it was really nice. That's a nice feeling. So with research, I think it's really important that it's the same because, I mean, I know, I think it's really interesting that there's a similar thing going on there. In organisations, often there'll be one person who's like the spokesperson for the customer voice or something like that, and they've, they've gone out to the client and they know everything about what the client wants. But I think it's really important to actually expose everyone to that raw material because there's so much more information and, and everyone will have interesting creative ideas and they won't be the same as that one customer voice. That's why I think... People can rock innovation, but they need to be given the opportunity. They need to also be exposed to the material that will stimulate the creativity that is in everyone. Okay, shall we unpack people rock innovation? So one thing that you say is that they need insights and they need food for thought and for creativity. Mm -hmm. What are the other things that they need? Well, I do think that's a key factor. And obviously they need to feel that their contribution has value. You know? So definitely that sense of what I have to contribute might be different from what other people have to contribute, but I'll offer it, you know, sort of that safety of, um, so that everybody can, can offer it. And then I think what's really important is to take from there to move to an evidence-based approach because often people already, some sort of filter that goes on, but actually, Actually, what really needs to happen is try a few things. Try this crazy idea. Try that person's interesting idea. Try something else. And even if you really are confident that one of them is not going to work, just having a few out there really helps that, you know, as you know, it helps sort of that um, design fixation where you think this one's going to be the one that works. You put out the three and then you can say, oh, how fascinating. Nobody went near the word cloud. I was sure they would love that. You can see what's really happening and then it means that somebody who had an idea that they were attached to, they can just see from the evidence, okay, fair enough, that didn't work. And then somebody else can be surprised. Oh, wow, that weird idea that person had, the users were sort of like glued to that. How did that happen? So 
taking it all the way through so that there, are, you know, there's that equality, being open to being surprised and putting it to the test so that um, the evaluation is done not on somebody's whim or somebody's supposition, but, but on the reality. Hmm. I have a related question, but from the other end, because you must have seen this. And I'm really curious how to balance two things. So one, I completely subscribe to the idea that it's very difficult to come up with a, the solution that just works and it's perfect or at least very, very good on the first shot. We used to have to work like this, but these days there are few well, businesses or at least like technological areas where it's necessary, like Elon Musk's puts people on a rocket, it has to work. I mean, no more controlled distraction, right? Yeah. So this testing is, is a nice kind of a safety net for us. At the same time, when I think of products like my favorite, unfavorite is Spotify, they are freaking constantly tweaking something on the user interface. Drives me nuts. Mm. So, Am I too old or there is some balance to be found there? Well, I'm not talking necessarily about inflicting the um, experiments on the entire user base. And even within the cockpit for Elon Musk, I mean, before you put somebody in a rocket and send them to space, I would hope that they've put them in a probably more expensive than a cardboard replica and they put some, you know, I like to imagine just big red buttons that they're pressing, you know. But that it needs to be something that, as a human, there's not a dark pattern where they actually go for a red fire extinguisher and it's the flamethrower or something like that. So they need a practice run, don't they? So there's, it's about trying something out, but it has to be in an appropriate context. And because, you know, obviously in a situation where you're working with B2B, say you've got a product that might have be integrated with everything else in the organisation, you do some tweak and everything breaks down and the invoices don't go out, well, that matters a lot. Whereas Spotify know that what's going to happen is you're going to get annoyed, but are you going to get annoyed enough to leave them? Mm. I'm sitting on the fence, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's getting... So, that's, there's that B2C thing that, that mm. also means there's a little bit more room to sort of push people. Um, it's that whole constant releasing changes as well. I'm not yet sure whether I, how I feel about that for exactly the reason that you're talking about. As users, we're efficient when things are automatic, like driving a car. Every time, if, you have, if you're always getting in a different car, it's kind of like, oh, the windscreen wipers are over here now. Everything you go to do, your automatic responses, you have to keep shifting them, and that's overload on the system, isn't it? So it's figuring out for your particular context I suppose, what's appropriate. But, you know, ideally looking for the evidence in the first place doesn't need to necessarily impact people in their regular lives. Ideally, there's a process where it moves into adoption that they're comfortable with rather than just having it inflicted upon them and it's an annoying change every time they wake up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this this is actually a discussion that uh, Kasia and uh, me are having for a quite a long time, which is that these A-B testing are often called experiments, right? But there is no hypothesis. 
There's no deadline. This is basically like uh, putting confluent variables into a system. And you don't even know why the result is what it is, because you don't isolate what you are testing from everything else that is happening. So at the end of the day, it's really random, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, yeah. I'm not really talking about that kind of thing. I'm thinking more, you know, say, for example, you put people into two cardboard or three. I'm a fan of three, actually. So you you try three different cardboard layouts and then you film them and you observe them and you say, okay, you're about to land on Mars. How are you going to go about it in this cardboard rocket? How are you going to go about it in this one and this one? And then you watch and you see, wow, that one they did it. This, you know, they got to the end of the task quickly. They did the right task, you know, in this rocket. Uh, they got to the end of the task quickly and they thought they'd done it, but actually they'd landed on Pluto or I don't know. <laughs> and then the next one, they couldn't figure out how to land it and they're still kind of going around. So <laughs> then you sort of look, okay, which were the bits in there that were working for them? Oh, this bit, this worked really well. Let's put this in our new rocket. And the second one, oh, that part they were really comfortable with, but this was where they went off track. So let's make sure that we never do that, you know, or whatever. But it's... There's a lot of um, postponing the learning and always being learning that I think is important in the development. Often people are already, they've jumped into the solution and then they think they're doing these kind of tests, but really they've already pushed someone down a particular track, mm. I think. And like you say, they then get on to the sort of, oh, little tweaks of, do they want it switch this way or that way? But sometimes they're not really being very scientific about how they work that out. I mean, observation, I'm a bit of a fan of actually watching things because you see those inflections, you see those hesitations, you see the avoidances, you, see, you sort of see the habits. And, you know, sometimes it's a matter of learning a new habit when you, you get a new car and it doesn't have a key anymore and you've got to press the button or have something in your pocket nearby or whatever it might be. And that's all right. But again, it's context and where that's appropriate. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Morgan Ping's work. She's a designer at Société Générale. And she had come from a B2C background and then she went into a B2B background and she was sort of trying to simplify the interface for the users. And in fact, they were like panicking because she was taking all of that important information off the screen that they needed. They're like, you know, traders doing shares and derivatives and things that I don't know anything about, but... So she's got this really nice idea of a UX efficiency frontier. So to do with, there's a line kind of where it goes. It can be oversimplified, but it can also be overcomplicated. And where is that for your particular audience, Mm -hmm. you know, to make sure that it's not just about taking stuff out. You know, like if you're landing a rocket on Mars, you need a lot of information and you need it visible I imagine so that you've got what you need when you need it just taking it all back to one button that says land might not be making putting that astronaut in a a feeling of being in control (laughs) (laughs) this is what Daniel Kahneman is talking about in his newest book which is basically all our decisions are intuitive but we have to feed that intuition and basically all the experimentation with the conclusions and with hypothesis and uh, all the testing that you are talking about is actually feeding your intuition. So when, when you make the decision at the end, it's more informed. And it's still going to be your decision, but uh, like in a sense that it's go- going to be subjective. But at least 
you collected more data to know what you are choosing in the first place. Hmm. Patterns seem similar to this, writing a song from cutouts only. The cutouts were random, but you still load your head with data, hear different data than when you're writing the song and then something comes hopefully out of it. good and beautiful comes out of it. Yeah. Yeah, well, humans, we're meaning-making machines. Mm. Uh, it's a wonderful thing about how we're made. I was with a group of people one time and I had got them to do some drawings. There were a group that had been meeting in the Tuileries, so I'd got them to do some drawings around um, the gardens. And then when they'd come back, I'd said, pick one of these drawings to reproduce on a piece of paper altogether that talks about your experience of this conference together. And one of the participants, I can't quite remember what he said, but he was like, you know, you're the la la la. You think we're all artists or something like that. You know, you think we can do this because we're all artists, because it was an artist art group. And I was like, actually, that's not the case at all. I, I think you'll be able to do this because I know that you're meaning making machines and because you're all human. And it was just amazing then to see what they did do. They would, like someone had the chain from the fence, you know, the, like the little gardens, they have those little iron chains and that was like, you know, oh, we're connected together. And, you know, somebody else had the lamp and it's like, oh, I've seen, you know, got new insights into what I've, what we're learning about. And anyway, I don't know if this is very relevant for our conversation, but I just, I just love that. It brings me to two thoughts or three. One, you say that people rock innovation, but much like with your songwriting club, it needs repetition. We can get out of form and out of training in being innovative, I think. So this, this is one thing that I would like to unpack with you a little bit. The other thing is that if you start being creative, you might feel shame. So like when you were talking about the, the artists uh, at the conference, they said, okay, like I, I am an artistic soul, so I'm able to draw, but I had some exercises with people who are not necessarily uh, skilled in doing these kind of things. And they are just ashamed of like, oh, I didn't produce anything that's worth of your attention or, you know, like these kind of things. And the third thing is that your individual way of thinking shows you only a part of the picture. So like you were talking about the prototypes is that you bring the three different prototypes from the ideas of different people. And basically at the end, you have the fourth prototype, which is the amalgamation of the three, really. It's mm. never the one that, that people choose, like the users choose. Mm. And very much like with the drawing, you choose the concepts from the different drawings to create something and to show something that's important. So in a way, in order to be innovative and in order to be creative, we need other people to inspire us to go further with our way of thinking. I think we definitely need other people to question our assumptions. <laughs> Because as you say, you know, we, are, we do all of that feeding, which is really important, but then we also don't know what we don't know. So having other people who have a different perspective that can say, you know, oh, is there anything else that we haven't seen? Is there a different way of looking at this? Can we turn it on its head or whatever it might be? Another pattern that I have seen is different people making different meaning from the same input data. 
So quite often you see someone says, I see this, this and this, and I conclude that. And someone says, look, but if I see, think about this, this and this, I conclude something slightly different. And here's the difference. How about that? Yeah, that's really interesting. One of the clean questions and the clean for teams that I'm looking into at the moment, one of the things is um, learning about how to give feedback and it's using this kind of evidence, inference and impact to you sort of break it down. So this is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm making up about that, actually. And then this is the effect that that's having, you know, and it might be the bit that I'm making up that's having the effect. So there was a really interesting example where we were in a, a Zoom call and the facilitator came into the breakout group and mentioned to one of the people that she was sort of putting her head down and not looking up when she was sharing and, you know, maybe she could just lift her head so that we could see her face when she was asking questions and she maybe she writes something down when she was, you know, she wants to write a question down as well. And so then the facilitator said, well, maybe you can pop it in the chat and then you don't... And so then the facilitator left again and this person was saying, oh... Obviously, I'm interrupting too often and I'm asking too many questions. And the other person in the breakout room were kind of like, how did you arrive at that conclusion? I mean, it was just really fascinating that she'd kind of travelled, where she'd travelled with this, could you just lift your head when you answer the question? It really had anything to do with her questions or her timing of questions. or So, you know, like you say, there's um, so quickly we can make assumptions about situations and and so that's why it's important that it's a, a team sport because she needed right then it was just really good that we were there to say hey friend that's not happening you're making that up and straight away she was like oh wow how interesting I must have been feeling bad about some other mm. thing you know but in the same way for our products we have to be careful that we just have to remember that we all Again, as humans, we get excited about one particular thing, we start to see that one particular thing, and even though we've gone to a lot of trouble to look at things from different angles, we still get to a point where we think we know about something. You know, we know we know. That's really the scary moment, isn't it? So. <laughs> Some people That's think really. it's a very happy moment, but reality <laughs> kicks in. You are doing the visual facilitation for a lot of meetings and sessions and creative processes. So I'm curious, how do you see drawing things out along with talking about them and uh, thinking about them helps to bring people together and to have these different perspectives on whatever they are working on? Well, Getting something out of you or out of them or out of each other and externalizing it in some way. I mean, that's, you know, that's something that designers have been doing for years. But kind of externalizing something, you, you then are able to have a conversation about it. So it doesn't matter if it's a stick figure or just triangles and squares, really. But I think there's something about narrative and about storyline that helps us. So one of the things that when I was doing a master's at NC Les Ateliers a number of years ago, well, I came up with this idea of symbolic storyboarding. So I'd, and using Dan Rome's back of the napkin idea that who and what is involved and where are they and how many of them are there and, and just those basic questions, just a few simple questions. So it's kind of like, okay, well, we've got clients. Okay, well, we've got post offices or whatever it might be. Okay, we've got checks, you know, what are the physical things that are involved in this 
interaction, whatever, and then try and get the teams to write stories with those, like a post-it of each of the picture. It's kind of like you can see then where are the gaps, where could we short-circuit things, putting them out on a wall so that you're physically involved and you're, you're getting, are starting to find bits of our brain all over our body, aren't they? So, you know, you're getting more of your body involved, you're opening up creativity. I mean, you know, there's this whole air, oxygen, blood. There's a lot more going on than, than we realise <laughs> in our wonderful bodies and brains. Mm. How much of that translates to, well, these days we have more meeting online. So suppose team meets to discuss something about the product and maybe someone draws along with this just, you know, as one of these extra triangles on our screen. Would that help as well? Or because of the loss of physicality, many of these things are lost anyway? Well, I think it all helps. I think making things visual helps. I do think that when you're making things visual in a space that's activating something in your body that's different. But, I mean, as we know, it's the same with... It's nice to meet in a room because you've got different energy. But this is also really nice that we're meeting online because otherwise we wouldn't be. Yeah. <laughs> and there's still, you know, it's not like there's zero energy. I mean, we're having a really nice time. There's good energy. So it's just different. So having someone drawing along, already that creates something that somebody else can go, oh, it was really interesting what they were drawing because I had a different image in my head and I was seeing it more of a, like a, a path and less of a less of a stairway, you know, or whatever it might be. There's Once again, you've, you've put something out and then the conversation can happen around it rather than it being, you know, you don't make sense to me or mm-hmm. however, you know, where things can start to break down like that whole kind of, that stupid kind of talk. <laughs> <laughs> But actually what you mentioned before we get on the record, uh, you are also using metaphors to to represent uh, the topics of discussion, I'm guessing. Uh, so can you say how do the metaphors work for you? Yeah, well, I'm sort of at the beginning of this exploration, so I'm not claiming to be an expert. But it's interesting how often we all are using metaphors all the time. We kind of think in metaphors. It seems to be that we actually think in metaphors. We kind of learn from the world around us as we're small and we're always thinking, what's that like? What's that like when we come across something? new and that whole what's that like is a, is a metaphorical comparison. So clients obviously often can't tell us what they're really looking for until we show them something and then they can tell us that it's not, no, it wasn't that. <laughs> I mean, we had some clients that one time they insisted that they would like a whatever it was. And They wanted it so badly that they took it upon themselves as a group of clients to invest the time to write the specifications and describe exactly what it was and pay the company to build it. And so there it was. And and then a while later, they admitted, no, none of us actually ever used that. That was, was a bad... Was a, a major waste of time. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, how wonderful. That's that kind of... You don't really know until you have some sort of way of trying it out. So clients often don't know what don't know what they need. So a metaphor in that situation, you know, you can ask some interesting questions about what would that be like if you had one of those that did that thing. Well, you know, that would be like the sun was shining on my day. Well, kind of, wow, okay, so that's a big difference. 
what about that sun? You know, well, there would be this kind of energy coming from it. And, and what kind of energy would that be? Well, it would mean that I wouldn't be tired when I get home at the end of the day because I'd have got a lot more done. It's like, ah, okay, interesting. And you'd have got a lot more done. So you're sort of digging into what's important about the essence of that, that thing. Anyway, as I say, I'm sort of exploring this. I think there's something in it. But if anyone would like to try it out with me, then let me know. All right. Okay. We'll think oh, we'll about put it in a, in a show notes. So <laughs> yeah. who knows? Maybe we'll get an avalanche of... Or we, yeah. will, we will think of trying it with Anna. Oh, oh, yeah, then we it. don't tell it anyone. Yeah, yes, we do. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. love, it, love it. Let's do that. Then I could, I've got this idea about putting that into um, comic form to help capture client feedback and communicate that to uh, the development team and the product team, capturing words and capturing information and capturing the feelings of the clients and putting them into a comic strip was much more helpful way of communicating that than putting it into a report because the report takes the emotion out of it. So I had someone um, from support calling a client to say how people are using this part of the product and then the client could say, well, actually, we've built our own thing to do that because it was so useless what you had. <laughs> it was like, um, so I kind of like, I was like, oh, what did they say? We don't have to use that anymore because we've built our own. And so I could just put that the client's words in there and send that back. And it was a nice little storyline and it had a little punchline. And the, um, the teams loved it because it helped them focus on where the problem was. You know, in that case, it was a really big problem that they weren't even using the module. But sometimes it could just be that they were being frustrated with a search screen because it wasn't intuitive the way the results were coming back. And so then you can... You can show the kind of questions if you're doing some qualitative research and you're hearing the clients saying things like, this is a nightmare. You know, you can put those little bits in there and, and then it really it creates a, a nice motivation because developers and product designers, and you know, we actually, we love making things that people love. So when they're saying, you know, this doesn't work, it's kind of like, oh, that's really interesting. What would work? What would work? I wonder what would work, you know? I love your idea of presenting information in a visual form. And I think that it has this advantage of being different from what we are usually getting, which is like PowerPoint presentation with bullet points. And basically, I'm laughing that much like we have ad blindness on the Internet, we start having bullet blindness on PowerPoint presentations. Basically, people are not parsing that information. So if they get it presented to them in a different form, a surprising form, a form that, like you said, evokes emotion, suddenly the impact of that reporting of the research findings is a whole different story. Yeah, it kind of, it finds its mark. I think it's more likely to touch a place and it might be the person whose place, you know, when it sort of arrives, it might be, oh, oh yeah, that's so true. We really should deal with that. Or it might be someone saying, oh, that's not right at all, so can you show the evidence? So it might, it's provocative one way or another, as long as it's done in a gentle way, not in a way that's directly attacking anybody. You know, it's more that it's just kind of capturing the evidence, putting a bit of a smiley kind of tweak on it maybe, but really using their own words. Yeah, putting it in a context. It can be shifting the context altogether. So I've got one of somebody looking at a rocket ship 
the company saying, well, you know, we'll take you to the moon and the client saying, oh, I just wanted to get down to the sh shops, you know. <laughs> so it's like you can take it out of its context to give it a spin where you, so that you can talk about things that, that might be difficult to talk about if they were just addressed front on. So there's sort of there's possibilities that arise when using, yeah, creative... I mean, it's kind of like a lot of art, isn't it? Art, it can be used as a way of talking about things that are sometimes otherwise difficult to talk about directly. With all what you're talking about with songwriting and music and drawing, I kind of agree with the hashtag that you have on your website, which is the Renaissance woman. So how does it <laughs> feel to be a Renaissance woman? <laughs> yeah, that was my husband's ideas. Hashtag underground legend, hashtag Renaissance woman, yes. Well, if I kind of think that people rock, which I do, then that includes me. So I have to, I have to own that. I have to, I think everyone rocks. So I rock too. <laughs> <laughs> There it is. I don't rock more or less than anybody else, but I do rock. So <laughs> you guys rock. We all rock. Oh, this is so cool. So let's rock on. <laughs> let's rock on. So there's another thing that you mentioned uh, just as we started this conversation that you sometimes think that your curiosity can be a trap or is a trap. Let's dig into this one. Is curiosity a trap? Well, I, I haven't got to the end of my curiosity. Is there an end to curiosity <laughs> ever? And so that's the question. I don't know that I'll... Will I ever be able to tell that it was a trap? I can't know. Yeah, so maybe a trap's a funny idea. Maybe it's more like a trail of breadcrumbs. Will it lead me to the Wicked Witch's house or will it take me home? <laughs> I'm go I think I'm going home. Feels like I'm going home. Mm. Sometimes it's a matter of believing and trusting and following the path, isn't it? What do you think, Aga? What Is it a I trap? Think, um... Yes, good question. I think it is a trap, but I'm happy to fall into it. <laughs> <laughs> so it depends what this metaphor represents, right? Yeah, so in a way, if we go on an even path, we kind of stop seeing the path because we are so much focused on ourselves and our thoughts and our way of looking at the world in a certain way. And if you, <laughs> if you stumble and there are things that feel like traps or there are traps, you get into it and then you have to be creative. There's no other way. Oh, you are saying that the curiosity is taking you places and therefore... Yeah, you oh, fall into traps right. and therefore you have to stay alert and stay present to get out of these traps mm. and you develop more curiosity so there will be another trap in a moment and so on. <laughs> that drives Anna's point that we have to draw things and, you know, build precise metaphors because I had a completely different answer. No, I mean, my answer, so was, answer? was similar, but my metaphor was different. What kind of trap is your trap? I was thinking that it's a trap in a sense that it's an addiction. So for me, the curiosity is in my brain and it's basically constantly trying to uncover something new, prove me wrong, fix my mental model of the world. And for that, I don't have to move. And even if I would be just drawing on your uh, metaphor, Aga, if I was like completely shielded from the world, I could still keep exploring, you know, inside my head indefinitely. <laughs> 
So now, depending on the definition of a trap, because trap is someone that someone sets for you to catch you and to stop you. So for me, well, it's not really a trap, but it's a trap in a sense that once, like an addiction, right? Mm-hmm. Once you get it, and admittedly, it has to be trained probably to a big extent. That's why schools sucks and education is missing in, at schools. <laughs> that once you're on that track, I mean, you're hooked. And probably you can become uncurious person, but I don't yeah, think that's easy. Yeah, but if you easy. have you know, physical <laughs> changes in your brain, you yeah, get, course, you know, yeah. of course, but... If we think that addiction is a trap, then I would say, yes, it's definitely a trap. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. What does curiosity give us that it's like taking something in that makes us feel good? It gives us high, right? Yeah, but for a specific reason. I mean, because we take many things inside that makes us feel good. And not everyone likes curiosity. I'm not sure if it's a good connection, but we had this observation that there are an awful lot of people who enter a conversation to have their worldview confirmed. Hmm. Maybe it's kind of a curiosity, not sure, but I'm rather thinking about the opposite reason to get into, I don't know, reading, talking with people, interacting with the world, hmm. to change that model of the world just... It gives me high, but I'm, well, I'm trying to build a model that works, kind of so it's a little bit more predictive than it was before. But I imagine could be different reason for tickling this existing views. <laughs> yeah, it is surprising sometimes when you come across somebody who doesn't have that curiosity. I mean, there's, there's different kinds, I suppose. There's some people who just want to know everything to be the ones that know and other people that aren't interested in knowing anything. And then there's just curiosity that that sort of yeah, pulls you along like that addiction. This is yeah. a question to you as our listeners. What is your definition of curiosity? And we would be super happy to hear some of your ideas. Yeah, uh, it's a good opportunity to ask a couple of clean questions. Is that okay? Of course. Yeah. Do so we want to question. say what the clean question is before or we do example first? Because it's a question oh, on my list. <laughs> yeah, we do the example first, actually. So I already used a couple of clean questions. So one was, you know, what kind of trap is that trap? And another one is, is there anything else about that trap? Or you could say when it's an addiction, is there anything else about that addiction? And then... Another simple one is when curiosity is a trap, whereabouts is that trap? Hmm. I have this metaphor for the recent years, which is I have a highway, which is my default way of operating that stems from my past, which was consulting and helping companies to change things and so on. And I have this like tiny, tiny little path on the side of that highway, which kind of goes away slowly in a different direction, which is my writing and doing the podcast and other things that I do in my life. This highway has like a weird property that it just pulls me in when I'm not paying attention. <laughs> so, you know, like suddenly I stop paying attention and I'm back on it and I want to follow my path. So the whereabouts of my 
curiosity traps are on my path, not on that highway. And mm. when I stumble upon them, I know that I'm still on my path mm. and not on the highway. That's really nice. And is there anything else about that path? Oh, there is a lot about that path. <laughs> First of all, when I started on the path, there was no path. <laughs> so I had to take a machete and <laughs> just start carving something in order to actually be able to arrive at the path. Because mm. the path was there, it was just hidden from me. And mm. once I got there, it wasn't the used path. And that's kind of not very consistent in the metaphor as I see it, because I feel that this path gets more defined as I go, which would imply that I'm going in a circle there. So like I'm kind of, you know, by, by walking It's through. just a magical path and it just yeah. reshapes itself yes. depending who is traveling on it. So yeah. It's fine. Yeah. So at first it was like barely a path. Like first it was no path at all. Then there was barely a path. And now the path gets more and more visible and it slowly gets this power that keeps me there rather than gets me out of it back on the highway. That's beautiful. And what about you, Lucas? Whereabouts is your trap or when the traps and addiction, whereabouts is that? Oh, the first thing that came to my head was something quite opposite to what Aga said, that curiosity addiction could be something that prevents us from actually doing something. So it's about endless exploration and finding every minute details of something or tweaking it again, but still in your head. And it can take time and your energy from, you know, instantiating it, whatever that is. Like the discussion around the product would be the easiest. You can keep designing this on paper, making these tests mm. that we yeah. talked before, which are valuable. And they always add some knowledge, but there is a trade-off between mm. figuring out everything to perfection versus actually making it happen and maybe moving to a next thing. Mm. So it's just one area that was easy to explain, but yeah, it's this balance between thinking and doing. I could imagine writing a book or a song for that matter could also go that way. Oh. You know, I have a verse and I could still tweak it. What happens if I do this? What if I change the tempo, the metronome, and make it, you know, rhyme differently? Put the song out. Can I turn this question on to you? So whereabouts is your trap? So where is this curiosity? I think it turned from a trap into the trail of breadcrumbs. It's sort of leading, winding through a forest. I can't, or not a dense forest, but like a woods, and it's feeling good. It's that sort of thing where you think, well, am I lost? Well, it's too far to go back, so I think I'm just going to keep going on <laughs> and I'm going to believe that I'm going to come into a clearing and then I'm going to be able to see for miles and uh, I'll be able to get my bearings again. Can you explain a little bit more about what the clean questions are and what, what the clean coaching is all about? And what they are for and why we should learn about them. Well, they originally came from someone called David Grove, who is a therapist in New Zealand, and he used them for working with people in a therapeutic context, probably trauma, actually. 
I'm not an expert. And so he was just trying to work with people and not bring any of his own material or suppositions or thinking to the conversation to mm -hmm. allow them to work through things. And so he devised a simple set of questions, something like six or eight basic questions, and then there's a few more that get a bit more specialised. But really a lot can be done with just what kind of and whereabouts and is there anything else about that dot, dot, dot. I mean, they're kind of like the basic introductory ones. And then there's some like, and what happens just before X and what happens just after X? So you can work with individuals doing what they, they call symbolic modelling, which I think is interesting because I was doing my symbolic storyboarding and here they have the symbolic modelling. And what happens is you just sort of work with where everything is in somebody's brain. So like you've got this you know highway in front of you and you've got this path on the side and you're helping them actually construct everything that's going on in their metaphoric world but often you don't even realize what's in there until you start sort of telling somebody else and and helping them just kind of explore it and go to the end of it and come around and maybe even resolve some things as we noticed actually with me I started off with a trap but then I shifted to a path and so actually I'm confident that I am already more relaxed about the curiosity that I'm currently following because of that. So it's one of those things that operates off to the side but then kind of has an impact in your own your life. Um, one of the things that it can be used for is working with other people and groups to let everybody talk about how they're feeling about a situation or how they see a situation. So you might be working with a group of clients so it was really interesting with the two of you because when I talked about curiosity being a trap and then Aga described her curiosity trap and then Wilkish said straight away, oh, that's really fascinating because that was nothing like what I was thinking. I had a different picture in mind. And so it can help people talk about all sorts of situations when they think that, you know, we were all talking about curiosity, we were all talking about curiosity being a trap, potentially, and we all kind of thought that we were all talking about the same thing and, we, you know, we kind of were, but we had quite different images of what that could be and the implications of that are quite important, I think. So it can really help people have a deeper conversation about um, all kinds of things and, so, and I'm particularly interested in, in how it can help clients and product or service providers have better conversations around what they're looking for and what they're providing and how they're going about creating things. So how it worked for us, you using a word whereabouts, that triggered the creation of this kind of mental images in our head and we then started to describe. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. Let me try to ask a clean question for you, which I've been already triggered because you mentioned a few times that you are not an expert. So what about not being an expert is for you. I don't know if I'm asking um, it any correctly, but uh, I'm just curious. Yeah, yeah, okay. So you could say something like, and when you're not an expert, is there anything else about not being an expert? 
So is there anything else about not being an expert? Well, actually, I've signed up to become an expert. I've signed up to do coaching training for clean coaching. So I'd like to be a coach because I find coaching really interesting and I'm kind of a natural mentor. And I think it would be helpful to be part of a coaching association so that that's a structured process and under supervision and that kind of thing. And yet some kind of coaching... Well, I have assumptions about, I have my own presuppositions about some kind of coaching where I think the coach kind of knows better and is sort of telling the person. Whereas with this clean coaching, I like the fact that it's just helping you explore something or helping the client, helping the clients explore things and go places that they haven't been before. And that's really what innovation and creativity is about. So I can see that it could be really useful. So I'm signing up by mid-year, I should be. An expert, an expert. <laughs> if I may, I'd like to come back to that point of Wukish about how much you delve into trying every little thing to see what's going to work compared to getting something out because it's a really important one. I'm really interested in research, but there is often that sort of panic and particularly management can sometimes fear that it's going to be a black hole of research and that nothing's ever going to come out of it. But the kind of research that I think is important is is regular learning, but staying practical, keeping it practical. You know, there's a balance for everything. It's like, well, okay, how important is this thing? How much do we need to get it right? How many people is it going to impact and then proportionately spending some time on that if that's the right place to put it. So people do wonder, you know, do you go in and in and in and in and in? Well, you've got to figure out for yourself if this is something that's worth going deeper on or if actually we can just do a couple of quick rounds and then we're going to ha- that's going to have to be that and we'll just get going with it. And true, with my songs, it's been helpful to be part of this club because it's like... The idea is to spend an hour on the song. It's pretty hard to spend an hour, I've got to admit. Try and get them down to an hour, maybe a couple of hours. I mean, doesn't it seem mad? It can take... If you don't know that, you think it can take months. But really, the the fun ones can come in moments. It's like, woof, they just whip in, in they come. (laughs) And then just sort of capturing it, getting it down, putting it out, and then thinking about later, you know, then letting people come and say, okay, well, next time around, if you're going to record that or release it, you know, you could think about this, you could add in some of that and seeing how the rubber hits the road. But it's true, I'm not advocating getting lost out there. It's all about staying connected, bringing that research into the Agile Sprints to make sure that it's all part and parcel and not sort of a a separate thing that gets shelved. It's got to be kind of fresh and like a, a flowing river where it's like fresh fresh water coming in. It's like, oh, that's making things sweeter. That's good. Mm. Mm. I have a theory about why it's so difficult. So maybe you could offer an opinion about this. Part of the stuff that I'm doing is if you have a group of people trying to make a decision to make sure that they are talking about the same thing, including how does the success look like? It, mm. It's related to these different metaphors that we have in our head. And it's, it's already, in my experience at least, quite a difficult task to make sure that the people 
can really say, preferably going to real measurements, you know, like we are happy with this solution if 80% of our users who used it, blah, 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 find it good. So, so such a simple kind of definition of how we will measure this success, it's already a difficult part. And on top of that, what I understand you are advocating, definitely what I'm trying to tell them is, now when you know exactly in which direction you want to optimize your solution or improve it, where does the point of good enough on that scale is? And I think that is the tricky part because, I mean, we both have been researchers, you, you two, it, it's great to go all the way, which means infinitely. There is no mm -hmm. end to the final grand solution. On the other hand, the business people, they would like to reap the fruits of your work as quickly as possible. Now, translation between these two is tough and making sure that the fruits that they reap are good enough or they are enough of a return on the investment they did on us. That's really tough. So this concept of good enough as opposed to really bad and perfection, that is something people struggle with. I don't know if, if we don't have enough experience this, maybe we haven't done it enough or maybe it's just a really difficult concept. One wonderful book that I read came across was by Kevin Cheng called See What I Mean. And it's about using comics in business, actually. So I'd sort of started doing it. I hadn't realised that I was doing it, but I was kind of just like scribbling out these little scenarios with little pictures. And so then I came across his book and then I was like, oh, wow, this is really just what I need. So then I could put them into frames and turn them into proper little comic strips. And so then I emailed him because I was just like, you know, I'd be tweaking something and tweaking it and tweaking it and tweaking it. I was like, oh, how do you know when you're finished? And he was like, well, when it does the job, you know. Mm. <laughs> so if it's communicating what it needs to communicate to the people it needs to communicate, then that's enough. Stop it. It doesn't need to look any more like a real human being. This doesn't need to look any more like a computer or whatever. It's just if it's doing what it needs to do. So I think that's the same with research. There's a certain point where, you know, probably like with what you're using for Spotify, it's doing what everything that you need it to do. You don't need it to change anymore. So one helpful way to know whether something needs any more doing to it is finding out whether anybody wants to pay any more for that difference, isn't it? Because then you can tell how important it is to them. If they really desperately want a thing and they want this amazing thing and you give them this quite ordinary thing, but then they stop, after that they stop, stop asking for the thing, well then that's probably enough. Mm -hmm. <laughs> As you know, the, the theme for the season is do. So I would love to ask you, what did you do recently that you are really proud of? So what am I happy about that I... Well, recently I released a single, Roll the Dice, and it's all about that two steps forward, six steps back feeling that you, you get sometimes when you're trying to make change in any context, whether it's in a, an organisation you're trying to bring change or, you know, my husband thinks it's all about him as an artist, trying to make a way as an artist. Um, but it's like lots of times in life you're, 
You're kind of subject to things that are just chance, but it can feel like it's trying to get you and you have to not take it personally. There's a pandemic, don't take it personally. <laughs> <laughs> this pandemic is not about you specifically. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So this song's about that. So I was really happy to get that released and I'm working on a few more actually. I've found a nice company that helps hook songwriters up with producers. And uh, so I'm having a bit of fun with that. Oh, that sounds very, very, very nice. So. What is your personal practice of making things happen? Oh, well, you know, that's a lifetime's work, isn't it? One thing I've always found really helpful, to be honest, is morning pages, Julia Cameron's morning pages. Three pages of blah. And uh, when I first did that, again, it was interesting, it was related to my songs because songs would come and I wouldn't be ready for them. And I was thinking, well, if I just had my recorder with me in the days before everybody had a telephone with a recorder on it, I was like, if I had my recorder with me, then that would make a difference. But it was really interesting when I started doing the morning pages, suddenly I found myself with my recorder. <laughs> it's really interesting because there's something that happens when you do those morning pages that takes the scum off the top of the creativity pot. I don't know how that works, but I know that When I've got to get things out, like when I was writing my paper for my master's, I really made sure I was doing my morning pages every day because it just clears out all the other stuff and it makes way for the creativity to come through. Um, I've also started doing, you know, like regular daily drawings. I read a Bible verse and do a kind of a, like a, just a meditative drawing beside that with my colouring in pencils, which is good, and I've started doing... I'm trying out the bullet journal. So for my guitar practice, I'm giving myself stickers when I'm... <laughs> <laughs> Jessica Abel, she has an autonomous creative project and she was like, you know, use stickers. And I was like, oh, okay, good. I, I've been wanting to buy stickers, but I didn't have a reason. Now, now I give myself a little sticker when I do my guitar practice. It's pretty satisfying, actually. Funny how we work, how yeah. we function. Mm. You already mentioned a few books, but if you were to think about a book that inspires people to, you know, make things happen, what would that be? Um, a couple of books are springing to mind. I mean, there's Creativity Inc. by Ed Catmull, which is, um, I think it's a really helpful book, just because There's all of the things that you do, but then there's also the fact that chance plays a part. So, I mean, that was kind of what the song was about. And then there's this other book called The Creative Priority by Jerry Hirschberg. And it's driving innovative business in the real world. It's interesting now, I read it driving because it's, he was actually working for a car manufacturer. But he just has a lovely way of talking about creativity and creating space for creativity and feeding creativity and I think it was written a long time ago but it's it's just sort of really fresh and working with teams you know and and thinking about helping other people keep each other fresh the idea that we were saying at the start about how we need each other Anna, thank you for this amazing conversation and for finding the time for us and for sharing your ideas and beautiful thoughts with us It was a pleasure. It was really a pleasure. We should do it more often. Definitely. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> <laughs>
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Catching the Next Wave podcast. We would love to hear from you on Twitter at Malka6 and at DLS6. You can find more details on www.catchingthenextwavepodcast.com. I'm wondering if my own curiosity is a, is a trap.